Let's speak one last time for this year into this uh, short series that we've titled Who We Are. And uh, this is based on the values that we hold as a congregation. And there has been reflection uh, on how we personally and corporately slot into these values together. And I hope uh, the feedback has been great, that, that you've uh, been fine with the organic way we've presented this and just allowing the Spirit to speak to us all instead of trying to be too coercive or try to pull for the heartstrings or, or go there with hype or anything like that. We've really just wanted to, uh, to share simply from the Spirit what, who we are. This is our DNA. This is, this is what our church is sort of in the habit of, of pursuing. And, and how can we all just be better at doing that? How can we all capture that? How can we capture who we are in 2020 and express that in a really great way, in a way that our church kind of needs, but also how the community needs to interact with that also? We have looked at three values so far. And the first one is that we are committed to being a disciple-making congregation. I'm happy to report that the, twin, the 10 batons I put out there all have names that are put on them now. They're, they're, when I looked, I said, look, the next 10 disciple-makers, put your hand up. And names have been given. Like the, I've, got, I've got no empty batons right now, although I can provide more if you need them. So, and there is a really amazing mix of people on, that, on those batons. Uh, young and old, male, female, um, just a, a intergenerational uh, uh, expression there. And, and there's, there's varying degrees of experience and, 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 and life experience. And, and I actually think that's going to be a really exciting group of people to work with. So uh, I will be in touch with you soon as we uh, begin to plan for that in the year to come. But we are deliberate about making disciples. The Great Commission is built on go and make disciples, not go and make people say a prayer. All right, we're about building people who follow Jesus and who become productive in and of themselves also. The second one is the value of being committed to intentional mission. All right, we have a responsibility to proclaim, to demonstrate, to announce the kingdom of God to the world around us. And we have a, a, a responsibility to, and a call placed on the church to be a voice of mission, a voice of witness to the world around us. That has an expression our third one was last week. Nobody walks alone. This is a value centered on the practice and the attitude of fellowship, the sacred art, the sacred practice of fellowship in the church. I won't go into too much details of those now because we have podcasts and online means to do that. But we have a cord of Christian living and worship now coming together. As we pursue these values, we have a, a we have this one rope, if you like. Think of it like an a, electrical cord. If you were to, I don't, you know, kids block your ears, but if you were to take the outer covering of that, you'd see a number of wires interwove, intertwined in that thing to make up one thing that we call a cord. Or if you look at a rope, there's a number of cords into you know woven together there. The rope, Christian life, spiritual formation worship the strands discipleship witness fellowship they're all intertwined and if you cut any part of that you actually cause an unraveling of the rope in an unhealthy way
And in the last strand that feeds into this is the area of service. Our value is that people here are empowered to lead and serve. We are committed to intentional ministry development, teaching people to become leading servants. We don't just talk about leadership like some top-down model. That's not the Baptist way anyway. Congregational government doesn't allow for that. Neither does the Bible. It's not about being top-down and, 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 and uh, it, that's, no, it's a collaborative style of leadership and Jesus' demonstration of leadership is all about service. Whoever wants to be great among you needs to serve. Jesus picks up a towel, washes disciples' feet. Why? Because he demonstrated love and he demonstrated who he was, but, you know, greatness through the act of service. When we think of leadership in Christian terms, service and influence is really where it's at. The very word minister is a service word. And ultimately, ministry and service is the destination that worship, uh, ministry, uh, discipleship, mission, fellowship, those things all lead us to this element of service to each other, to the world around us, in the life of the church, to Jesus, of course. So far, none of that should be all that revolutionary. Spiritual formation, the journey of discipleship, builds us up and equips us for service. I do have a few verses on how service and the ministry in the church goes down, and I just want to bring out um, just a couple of those today for the sake of time. These verses bring me to the conclusion that Christian influence and service is everyone's job. Ephesians 4 is the chief of these verses. We're actually going to be looking at this in depth next year. We're doing a series on Ephesians, and uh, this will, by its very nature, come up in that discussion, and I'm actually looking forward to that time. Uh, Here's a quick snippet of that. It's just uh, chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. For the longest time, I've been convinced that the five roles mentioned here are pretty much the ones all of us fit into. These actual roles become part of our spiritual identity. I'm convinced that these roles are far more widespread than nearly the people we employ in church life or even the people we elect in meetings like we will after this service. They have an expression outside of these walls. They have an expression in the walls. They, but they have an expression as a form of identity of who we all are. We all fit into these roles together. And together, when we step into these roles, we play a role in seeing uh, the fullness of Christ happen. It's an amazing thing. I'm a continualist. I believe the prophetic and the apostolic gifts are very much present and active in the local church also. Because when we understand them well, when we take them off the pedestal that we sometimes put them on and actually understand how they do play out in everyday life, we soon discover that the church actually still needs them. 
I had two reflection times today. This is the first one. 15 seconds. Take a look at those five things and tell me, even with the limited knowledge you may have, some of us are new to faith. Some of us are, are still trying to find this way. Some of us might be interacting with these ideas afresh today. If you look at the screen and you look at those five functions, is something knocking on your heart today? Is, is it, does it suddenly feel like, gee, I'm looking at the mirror? Do any of those functions ring true with you today? I, want to de- I actually want to give you permission to think bigger. We've often talked about just shepherds and teachers and evangelists uh, in the life of the church. We don't always understand the apostolic. We don't always have time for the prophetic or we're very guarded with it. But I, I just want to take a moment. 15 seconds. Do any of these five gifts resonate with you? Just consider that for a moment. You can have more than one too. I'll encourage you to go back and have a read of that later on and, uh, and just you know, look at it with fresh eyes and maybe deliberately ask the Spirit about how to interact with that passage. Romans 12, for the sake of this morning, is the other passage I feel led to just address today. And um, for those who are visiting, we have three uh, significant people groups in our church. We have English-speaking people. Um, we also have uh, our Karen, so that's commercial Burmese that's being used there, um, and Swahili for um, our other elements of our community as well. So uh, the top one, if you are visiting, is the English one. Just giving you the heads up there. We're going verse by verse with this. Verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. We'll keep reading in a sec, but this is a very loaded verse. We have sacrifices, we have mercy, and we have worship laid out and practiced in a very distinct way in this verse. Mercy is clearly first here. It is the umbrella. Paul has spent the good part of 11 chapters making that point clear. And now he's saying in light of that, in light of your understanding of mercy, in response to the mercy of God, sacrifice your bodies in a living way. By body, Paul means one's whole self. Greek philosophy separated body and spirit, but the Hebraic Jewish thought, the stuff that that would have influenced Paul in his thinking of religion and faith, they considered uh, they considered it uh, one thing. Your body was your whole being, everything. By sacrifice, Paul simply means to render it God's property, not our own. Once a Jewish offering was thrown into a burning altar, one could argue that there was really no going back, no take back, no oops, wrong thing. Put it in a fire, it's irrevocably God's. By worship, Paul is saying that in our laying our whole lives down as God's to use, all of life becomes an expression of worship. 
The discipleship journey we are on will lead us to this place where we are no longer our own to lead or govern. We're set apart for the use of God in all that we do. Because, and this is not because we're not doing this to get God's mercy. We are responding to God's mercy in laying ourselves down this way. It's not sacrifice first and mercy second. It's actually Jesus has already taken care of that. Mercy first for us. And then we lay ourselves down in response to that. Paul goes on to say this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is Discipleship 101 here. Mercy begins a pathway that leads us to a journey of transformation. The pattern has changed. This is the terminology of a metal foundry here. The image we are to bear, this changes. We're not looking like the world anymore. We're starting to look more and more like Christ. Then we start talking about service. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In other words, we're no longer our own bosses. We have by no means arrived. We don't have permission to walk in any sense of superiority. Instead, this transformation from mercy to sacrifice, to worship, discipleship and fellowship, this leads us to a more humble way that is called service. goes on to say this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul shows us here that we now belong to each other as members of a body. And each part has a function. I am reliant on you as much as you are reliant on me. And all of us are reliant, of course, on Christ. And we need each other to be at our Christ-like best. Our ordained functions complement and complete us together. If some pockets of the body choose not to use their parts, the body feels that. The body has to either overcompensate and work harder, or not actually get some functions done at all, depending on the part, depending on what is missing. Paul then gives us outlets of Christ examples here of, of how Christian service can have an outlet. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other lists in other epistles that give us other ideas of how service can go down. 
But this is an encouragement to the church to actively look for ways to worship in the area of service. They're not necessarily reserved for church use. But it does imply in this passage that being part of the body and expressing those gifts in the body is part of it. Healthy Christian discipleship leads to our faith being deeply integrated with everyday life. Therefore, Christian leadership uh, and Christian ministry and service has an equally powerful and needed expression both inside these walls as well as outside there as well. I would go as far as to say that a healthy Christian operating in leadership in the world will actually demonstrate the kingdom of God as they do so. When you show Christ-like leadership in a world out there, if you show leadership the way Jesus demonstrated it in the world around us, that can only demonstrate the values of the kingdom of God, can't it? If we're doing it the way Jesus says, then we're demonstrating the kingdom. And we're living questionable lives. We're living in a countercultural way. And it will actually give us a missional edge if we lead the way Jesus teaches us how to lead. Paul also speaks specifically of being integrated together as a body here. So these outlets of service are something that the church body also depends on. So before we talk about putting this value into action, let's look at this list. Let's take, a, take on board just these examples. talks about prophecy, and this is in accordance with your faith. That's something to flesh out at another time. But, you know, there's, there's different ways prophecy has an expression and, and different experiences and different um, understandings and, and, and different experiences that will feed that process. Foresight and insight are elements of, prophet, of prophetic ministry. Over the weekend, just listening to Alan Hirsch at an event this weekend, um, he actually says that pursuing justice is an example of what prophetic behavior looks like. That's pretty cool because um, there's a fresh bent towards justice emerging in our midst at the moment, which might indicate something prophetic taking place there. Serving, all of ministry is service, but there are people who are specifically gifted for certain expressions of, of actually uh, waiting tables, as it were, of, of actually doing specific service things. Teaching, that's self-explanatory. Encouragement, this is more than slapping someone on the back going, you can do it, mate. This is actually being a bit more engaged in the process than that. It's actually adding strength to others here. Giving and generosity. Some are actually positioned to actually excel in this regard. There are stories in times past of Christian business people who actually understood that their financial success was actually them being gifted so that they could finance other ministries in the life of the church. Mr. Colgate goes down in history as one of the people who actually goes down, who, who learnt that and, and, and actually saw his business and the success of that as an outlet for the ministry of this regard. Leadership, we all minister, and some are called to steer things along the way. Cheerful mercy. Now, we're all called to show mercy. It's one of the Beatitudes. I wish that word mercy was used a little bit more frequently um, in some church settings that I've sort of been observing. 
But some are specifically gifted in this regard also, more than others, and it shows in who they are. I'm going to stop, I'm going to pause, let the Spirit speak for 50 seconds. I've learned that one minute actually stops the recording. So for 50 seconds, let's, uh, let's pause and, um, and, and just see what the Spirit wants to say there. Is, is this the sort of, you know, are any of these capturing you, going, you know what, God is actually ordaining me to do this, but I'm not doing it. God has placed me in a body to actually accomplish a function. And maybe it's not on the screen. Maybe it's something else. But are you a body part that's actually not being used right now? Is the Spirit wanting to say something? Let me pause. Let's reflect on that just for a little bit. Hopefully you've noticed over the last few weeks, that there has been a more organic approach to, the, to our values this time around. There's no corporate rah-rah. There's no setting crazy goals because we've already got some very good things in place. We don't need to be putting new burdens on the life of the church. There's no new ministries to launch or things to kick off. We're just going to actually be doing a, a, a pretty much the same, but actually doing those things in a, in, a, in a way that we've learnt from what we've done before and we'll just continually be better at doing those things. Uh, I believe there are some great things in store in the life of the church in the, in the year to come, but also some big challenges ahead. There are things that need to be done. There are roles that need to be filled in the life of the church. There are things we have to accomplish. There are challenges lying ahead for us in a big way. But I've actually felt to be as reflective as possible in how I've presented this to the congregation. And I believe the Spirit has been doing work as we've been presenting these things. As we come into this value, I don't want to coerce anybody or twist anybody's arms or, or put any fear of hard work or extra work on people's shoulders as we come to this. I do not want to be a source of burden as we come together today. But I also trust that the Spirit is moving in our midst as we consider leadership and service in 2020. And I would prayerfully ask you to trust what Jesus says when he says, my burden is light. And that we have equipping clearly from the Lord given to us in order to do the service that we put our hand up for. If we approach service the way the scriptures present it, as a body using all of its parts, the body will not be taxed and no individual part will be harmed in the process. So I ask questions like this so that the body parts start getting awakened. Will you allow me one final time to consider how service can be on, on all of our minds as we consider ourselves as disciples of Christ and a missional people in fellowship today. First, a daring to engage with the ascension gifts of Ephesians 4. I've already tapped into this briefly when I talked about evangelists, uh, you know, and, and, and people have had no trouble with that. But what about the other ones? What about the less spoken of ones? 
The lifeblood of church health is that all five gifts are present, are recognized and activated in the local church. Attaining the fullness of Christ depends on it. We're going to be speaking into this, and I'm actually praying that you'll all be brave enough to engage with these gifts in a pretty deep way in 2020. If we do, we'll suddenly find that we're actually more equipped than we give ourselves credit for. And it's my prayer that we actually see ourselves as more, you know, as, as more of what God is ordaining in us so that we actually feel more confident putting our hand to things as we go along. I actually believe that the A word, the apostolic, is something deeply and profoundly applicable to the whole Mount Gambia church. And I believe the Lord is beginning to ask a searching question of this congregation. That if it's not us, who will it be? I believe a specific apostolic expression is on the horizon for this congregation. In my spirit, it's like driving on a highway and seeing city lights in some distance off. But because you can see the lights, you know it's still not all that far away. For the record, all of my academic pursuit from the here on in, my master's thesis and all this other stuff that I'm now working on, is actually built around this idea, so look out. <laughs> but let's consider service as described to the Romans. Out of simply knowing Christ, out of a revelation of the mercy of God, out of being transformed into the image of Christ more and more, out of a mindset that says, I haven't arrived yet, Let us come to a place of active and engaged service. A number of us here speak of your vocations as ministry. One, I completely want to endorse that. What you do in the world out there, if you, an integrated faith sees their worship in all areas of life. So yes, you are ministering, you are serving the Lord as you serve in the workplaces you're in. There is ministry going on and you are demonstrating the kingdom of God. You're doing great things and I endorse that. But can I ask you also to consider service in terms of a body functioning together at the same time? Sometimes when we see ourselves in that space, it is a noble space. It can sometimes come at the expense of what perhaps the Lord is also ordaining you to accomplish in the body as well. I don't believe a Christian ministry is a case of one or the other. I would suggest that I became a good leader in secular settings because I learned to be a good leader in my sacred ones first. Leading and serving in Christian contexts will always lead you to being a sharper and more Christ-like leader in the roles you play in the world around us. We learn the kingdom values of leadership here. We practice them out there. We kind of need both in our life in order to make us sharper in all that we do. There is a crazy and terrible statistic that has made the round in church life, literally for decades. In secular circles, it even has a name, the Pareto Principle. 
the 80-20 rule, the law of the vital few. It tells the story that in any organizational setting, 80% of the work gets done by just 20% of the people. In the church world, most churches really only pursue two of the five ascension gifts, rendering it a shadow of what it can be. At best, the church runs at about 40%. In the church world, there is a frightening attrition rate of both pastors and volunteers because of the burnout that comes when this principle is in play. But the scriptures tell us that we are a body and all the body parts play their role. We can keep that rule at bay in our church. We can have a culture where that has no place here simply by all of us taking up the role that we know the Lord wants us to do. If all of us operate in a healthy and integrated way with the Lord, the gifts that the Lord has given us, we'll actually be amazed at how much more we as a church can really do. Are your gifts being used? If not, why not? Is it us not recognizing those? Is it us not calling out for it? Is it you withholding it? Whatever it is, the body needs us. It needs you, it needs me. We need to work that through so that the body is at its best. Can I ask all the ministry teams to keep meeting together in 2020? Most teams meet together at least on a quarterly basis, and I'm blessed to see this happen. Let these things be a celebration of gifting. Let these things be filled with the spirit of fellowship. Let these be times of great training and development. Continue that. That is a great culture that is now in place in our church, and I'm blessed to see that happening. Keep it up. It's awesome. I'll remind you that there is a more formal option of training at our church also. We have a partnership with um, Alpha Crucis College. Andrew Potts, he's not in here, he's in the kids' church. Just told me before, he just got his final marks. He has just completed this certificate for training. Now officially, he has, you know, so he's ready to graduate. So that's really awesome stuff. So we actually have our first completion of a course like that. That's a big job. And he's done well. We've got a couple of other students in the church right now also. There's room for a few more. It's one of the cheapest and the most accessible forms of theological training you can get your hands on so if it's something you want to look at no matter what your educational background is if you're an adult it won't be beyond you can i ask you to give some deep consideration in the event that you are personally asked to jump into a ministry in 2020 it's no secret that some ministries are screaming for leaders. But the culture is still very much one of getting the right people for the ministry at hand. If someone says, hey, can you come and actually be a part of this particular ministry? We're not doing it because your name is free. More often than not, you are being asked because you have a skill set that is being recognized as useful for that space. So if that question comes along, if someone comes alongside you and says, hey, how about it? Would you deeply engage with that? Seek the Lord over it. And just see what the Lord is saying as people do that in, that in the life of the church. 
If you've been asked, it's because the Spirit has most likely made that conversation happen. Your gift is valuable to the world and the body. We will make sure that you don't burn out using it. So these are our values. We are committed to being a disciple-making congregation. We are committed to intentional mission. Nobody walks alone. We are intentional about fellowship. We see it as a sacred act and we value it. And we are empowered to lead and serve. As we go into 2020, I just want to throw two more Bible verses at your, your way and just give something that I believe in my retreat time. God has actually put these on my spirit to share with the congregation and I believe this is some time to do that. It's a little bit different. I'm just moving across here. This is territory I don't normally take up, but I'm feeling compelled by the Spirit to actually share these and speak into these ever so briefly for you guys. 1 Kings 17. So well, there's a couple of well-known passages here, but I think the Lord will use them to speak to us today. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath where he came to the town, when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up. The jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. 2 Kings 4, the, the same but different here. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, next generation. Your servant, my husband, is dead and you know what he, that he revered the Lord. Now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Your servant has nothing here at all except a small jar of olive oil. It's always that last thing in the pantry, is it? Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another, jar, another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Two very different stories, two generations apart here, but both feature a miracle with oil. 
It's just olive oil here. But you can imagine in the midst of a famine with no olive groves growing, it's hard to get that stuff. I don't know how I'd function. That first passage, I believe there are two ideas and two people that we need to learn from in this. First, Elijah. The entire congregation could well see themselves in this story. The world around them is in in drought. And the Lord, for a season, has actually put him in a place where he has been sustained. He's the one giving the bad news. You, no rain. See ya. And he goes and sits by a brook. Ravens are bringing food to him. There's a stream. He's got it all fine while the world around him is actually going into drought. For a season, it's fine to be sustained that way. Sometimes it's good to get out of things and actually be away and be refreshed and be prepared in those times by the Lord to see the provision and the blessing of God in your life. But there's all points where even for him, the, the brook dried up, the raven stopped coming, and the Lord said, you've got to get out there. Because it's one thing to be in this bubble of blessing. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's a whole other matter that actually we can, in that space, become aloof from the drought going on around us and the people that we're actually supposed to be serving and reaching out to in that time. It was a point where Elijah was actually thrust out of that space to actually get back to the real world and to engage with the people in that drought. I believe the Lord wants us to not be aloof from the world around us. If any of our Christian comforts are in the way of achieving that, we actually need to be willing to lose them. It's time to not remain in our comfortable space up the hill and, 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 and not be engaged with the hurts and the sufferings and needs of our city anymore. I believe as we begin to shake the comforts off, allow the bubble to burst a little bit, allow ourselves to be thrust out into the drought, as it were, we'll actually start seeing some amazing prophetic ministry take place in what we do. Let's shake off the comforts. Let's allow ourselves to be thrust out. But that widow in Zarephath, she's some of us here today also. There is a perception that what she has is not all that much. Going to make something, me and my boy are going to eat, we're going to die. Sometimes we think that what we have in our hand once it's gone, it's gone and we're going to shrivel up. When it comes to our gifts, when it comes to service, we often feel that. I've got nothing more to give. I come on a Sunday morning because the world has wrecked me through the week. I've got nothing more to give. I've got my little loaves. I've got a little bit of oil. I'm just making, I'm just clawing in the Sunday morning here in the worship because I just want to get back into that stream again. It can feel like that, but the gifts God gives us ordain us for something greater than that. There's more going on through the Spirit in our lives than we give the Spirit credit for. And we hide behind this, this, uh, this 
sense of inadequacy or this sense of fatigue or this sense of, you know, all these different things can hold us back. And we go, the little I have is only just enough for me. Yet the widow gave that. And gave. And more came. We don't know where it came from. Just opens the pantry and there's, it's like Groundhog Day. The bottle's full again. As we give, the Lord will sustain. As we, some of that might be financial for some of us. The Lord will sustain. Some of that will be time. The Lord will sustain. Some of that might be energy. The Lord will sustain. Please don't hold back when the Lord is ordaining you to give what you have. The second one is obviously another prophet, another story of oil, but another pertinent word for us. As a church, we're enjoying the oil, the spirit moving in our midst. But there's a risk that we can run out of empty vessels. If we don't serve... You stay full up. You can't be an empty vessel if you haven't given. That's one way. We need to, in our personal being, continually come to God as an empty vessel for the oil to continue in our midst. Our house churches, we need to create more empty vessels. We need groups willing to split in order for the oil to, 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 to flow. The minute we say we have no more room is the day the oil stops. It's the day that God goes, fine, I'll go somewhere else. If there's no more space for the oil, what does God do with that? What does the Spirit do? He feels fine. Do we want to stifle what the Spirit is doing? We need to continually be looking to be and to present empty vessels as a church expression. Because as we continually present as empty, the Lord will continue to fill. I believe our Sunday morning service is also a process of that. I need to put this on the radar at least at this time because we've started to talk about it. It's, no, it's an open secret now. But some days, this place gets too full for all of us to worship together. Right now, we're a worshiping community of 340 people. We're a seating capacity of 250. We do the math, something's a problem there. I believe a second worship service may well be uh, one of the empty vessels we need to consider. That's exciting. But not before we're ready and not before it's... But as we consider the different things that happen, as we consider the ministries that we're doing, I really feel that thus says the Lord, do not... Get full vessels. Let's continually allow for the Spirit to move in our midst. As the more empty vessels, the more unchurched people can connect. The more we can actually grow in fellowship and gifts and other things and see great things happen in our midst. Empty vessels are where it's at. And the oil and the flour will flow. Don't hold back in our giving. Don't hold back in our serving. Don't hold back in what we think is in our hands. It will not run out. The Lord will sustain. 
And let's always be on the hunt for that next empty vessel. Some of that empty vessel stuff, man, I'm not even game to share all of it yet. But I know that the Lord has got some great things in store for us in that regard too. Let me stop. That's 2020. Let's, there's a lot of things the Spirit is going to do. There's a lot of great things that our values will set us up for. And there's a lot of great ministry to be done in the year ahead. And we have a church meeting to hopefully somewhat endorse some of that <laughs> after this service. But for now, can we just stop and pray? And then I'll hand over to the worship team.